This is the Reading Teacher's Lounge, where listeners can eavesdrop on professional conversations between elementary reading teachers. We're passionate about literacy and strive to find strategies to reach all learners. Shannon and Mary are neighbors who realized that they were literacy soul sisters at a dinner in their Atlanta neighborhood. Once they started chatting about reading, they haven't really stopped. Come join the conversation. Hi, welcome to the Reading Teacher's Lounge. This is Shannon Betts here, and I have my co-host, Mary Sagafi, and we also have a special guest here today. Her name, well, you might know her as Not-So-Wimpy Teacher, or you might know her by her actual name, which is Jamie Sears, but uh, she is here to talk to us about her new book, which is How to Love Teaching Again, and she's going to share a lot of tips with us about how to get more done as a reading teacher in less time. So thanks for joining us today, Jamie. Thanks. It's my honor to be here. I've been a big fan of yours for years. I actually own your grammar units and they have helped me so much in my teaching. So you make great resources. Thank you. Whenever we make resources, I really think about what can we do to just save a teacher time because it is that number one resource that you cannot get more of. That's so true. So true. And so your book is full. I mean, it's called How to Love Teaching Again. And I I like that it's not full of just like frou-frou things like remember why you started and, you know, like remember it's for the kids. You actually give practical tips of things that we can do to make each day more comfortable and more, you know, um, enjoyable and easier as a teacher. And then that builds the love for the profession back. Yeah, That's a neat approach. I, I'm tired of foo-foo stuff. I'm not really into that foo-foo stuff. And I talk about it in the book. Um, my publisher wanted to get rid of the word foo-foo in my book. She said that wasn't a real word. And I'm like, it's a real word. It's it's for real. This book is not foo-foo. They tried to say it was a pep talk for teachers. And I'm like, no, teachers don't need a pep talk. Teachers need real, actual advice that they can use tomorrow. And then they need big change in the world of education. I can do one with the book. The other I'm going to have to do with my voice, my vote. And so that's what this book is. It's actionable strategies, one after another. In fact, an early rendition of the title included something like 12 strategies for loving teaching more, but then there was too many strategies. We lost count. So we had to get rid of that. It's coming out at just the right time because like since the pandemic, we've had so many teachers leaving the profession and it feeling so burnt out. And so um, I think that this is timely and I hope that teachers, you know, if they're on the fence about it, can really find some really great tips um, from this conversation with you and then also from going to the source of your book to help them reclaim that love of teaching and stay in the field because we need them in the field. Yeah, I mean, if teaching really isn't for you, then of course, find something that you're passionate about. But what we're seeing is it's teachers who always wanted to be a teacher It's teachers who have given their heart and soul and they want to love teaching, but they're tired. And it was definitely the case before the pandemic. And it's even more of a challenge after the pandemic. There's so much on our plates as teachers. And I I watch the news every morning. And yesterday they said that my state of Arizona has 3000 teacher vacancies right now. I mean, we're three-fourths of the way through the school year, 3,000 teacher vacancies. And they said, and that doesn't include the fact that there are lots of teaching positions being held by long-term substitutes and, um, you know, 
teachers who aren't fully certified yet and are using like an emergency cert. So that's 3000. They're just empty. That's teachers covering the class on their plan period. That's huge class sizes for other teachers. And it makes me sad. If you want to love teaching, I want you to love teaching because our students, they need the crazy, amazing educator that you are. And so I'm I'm so passionate about helping you to find that love again. And that usually means working a little bit less. It means less chaos in the class. It, learns, it means having a better relationship with maybe families in your classroom. So that's not bringing you down. And these are tough. These are tough things for, for every teacher right now. So what do you think is the main issue of why everybody's feeling so burnt out and lost the love of teaching? We're, I mean, teachers are being asked so much. Those class sizes, the standardized tests. My, my state is now has a bill going through to add an extra standardized test to all high school students to make their high school diploma more valuable. And I'm like, <laughs> good grief. We don't need more tests. We don't need big class sizes. But right now, I mean, there's funding problems. There's, there's just asking too much of teachers. The fact that teachers have now become counselors. Mm -hmm. Uh, Students are going through some really, really big things and probably always have. And and now uh, teachers are being asked to care for their mental health on top of teaching. It's a lot. And so as teachers, teachers love their students. We don't have to ask them to love their students. They just love their students. And yes, they do it for the kids. We all know that. But because they're so busy giving all of themselves to their kids in their classrooms, they're not able to have lives outside of the classroom. And it's the stuff you do outside of the classroom that reignites that passion when you go to work. Mm-hmm. It's when you get to take breaks, you get to spend time with your kids, you get to play a board game, you get to go to bed early or sleep in late on the weekend and not worry about work. Very few professions have to take their work home, but education is definitely one of them. And the overwork is definitely the biggest, biggest challenge I think teachers face. They're tired. And um, my last few years in the classroom, I just got so much more of my autonomy taken away every year, Mm -hmm. even though I was more experienced and knew what I was doing, I had less and less freedom. And it got, I mean, and I was brave enough to actually be outspoken about this and say, why are we doing this policy? Show me how it's going to affect the test scores. You know, it's Mm -hmm. taking away from me spending time planning my small groups and things like that. And they were just like, it's a non-negotiable, get it done, Miss Betts. It's a non-negotiable, get it done. And it was, it just, it was so hard to either hold my tongue, you know, or to not hold my tongue and then get in trouble or to then I was just, I was, I was, I was using a lot of energy getting yeah. frustrated about some of the things that were out of my control. Yeah. And you're not alone. I, I think that, um, so I I definitely felt all of those same stresses that you all were talking about, but I'm working as an advocate now. And so as an advocate, I go into the schools and I see teachers who are craving for better resources or they desperately want to teach a struggling reader and they don't have the tools or the support to be able to do that very effectively in their class. And so it gets glossed over for a number of reasons, but, you know, parents are begging the teacher this is what my kid needs. I don't, I don't know how to teach them. You know, you all are the experts. 
And then when the door closes, because I know from when the door closed behind me, it was, well, we can only offer this. We don't have to give the best of the best. We don't. And it doesn't feel good. It mm. doesn't feel good when you feel like you can't give what your students need to them. And so it makes everything just mm. so much harder and so much more heavy. It's a big, heavy load to carry, I think. And um yeah. Yeah, I, I think making building bridges and stuff for me is the way that I'm trying to help teachers. But I love how you're giving actionable strategies to do that. Let's chat more about that because <laughs> we know no, the struggle. I, my community is saying all the same things you are and and fighting all the time, whether it's fighting with administrators or what's best for your students, whether it's fighting to get the resources you want or even using your own money for the resources that you need. That's all exhausting. That's a lot of pressure when I think society thinks that teachers just come into the classroom, open up a textbook and start teaching. We all know that's not true. And you made, uh, you used the word, Mary, the expert. If teachers are the expert, we need to start treating them like experts, which means that we need to start giving them that autonomy. We need to start trusting that they know what's best for their students or that they know what's best for themselves when they're asking for help. And I don't know if that comes from the top down or the bottom up. I mean, I think probably from the bottom up where we need to treat ourselves as experts and behave as experts. And then mm -hmm. because I don't think it's going to come with the politicians that are then going to go to the central office. that are then Well, here's the thing. We need the top to start respecting teachers. We need the pay, the resources, the funding. But that's just going to take a lot of teachers need some morrow in the classroom. And so. Unfortunately, we're asking teachers to sort of fix some of these problems, which I don't like that idea. So in my book, I'm like, these are actionable strategies you can do to help yourself, but I know you need and deserve more. And so, yes, we have to keep advocating for teachers. And I love that you have a platform like this and I will keep advocating myself. But in the meantime, I don't want teachers crying at the kitchen table like I was. Is there anything that we can give to them? Like just to help them get through tomorrow so that they're not, the greatest ones are not leaving the classroom too soon. And that's what this book is. It's, it's, it's actually what's in our control. Mm -hmm. So I'd, I'd love, um, let's just talk about chapter one, because I think that it's really cool that you don't immediately start into here's step one of how to fall in love with teaching. You actually start with a mindset shift and you don't, the teachers don't realize it's a mindset shift until you do the exercise, but can you explain what happens with the definition of success? Yeah. And I will tell you what that when you say mindset shift and defining success, I instantly get this like, oh, that's woo -woo. not what I need. Yeah, this, <laughs> Here's is, foo -foo. this, this is foo foo. I don't do foo foo. And I, I truly do not do foo foo. So the fact that I put this in the book and the fact that it is chapter one of the book, you got to trust me that this is going to make a big difference. So for a very long time, teachers have let administrators, parents, politicians, society define what success means in the classroom. It's standardized test scores. I mean, goodness, we've all we've all felt that from the administration, from from society as a whole. It's it's test scores. It's it's the teacher whose classroom is is looking Pinterest worthy. It's the teacher who has all the fancy activities. It's the teacher who stays at school at night. She works weekends and summers because she does it for the kids. And that's what it means to be a good teacher. Well, under that definition of success, like 
No wonder we feel so much heaviness. No wonder we're so tired. This isn't sustainable. And these are not things that you have control over. You can deliver the most sensational lessons every single day and still have students who struggle on standardized tests. Standardized tests weren't written for your students in their situation. And so when we define our success by those types of metrics, we're going to be disappointed every day, every year. We're going to say, I'm not doing enough. So in chapter one, I give you a strategy for writing your own definition of success as a teacher. And honestly, we were talking before this interview that I use the same strategy to write a definition of success for myself as a mother. And I encourage you to do it for other roles that you have in your life. This definition is stuff you have control over. It's what you are going to do. When you do this, you are successful. You're going to find after you go through this activity that there's a whole bunch of weight lifted from your shoulders. Your job isn't to get great test scores. Your job isn't to have the perfect bulletin boards and to have, you know, this fancy reading activity with classroom transformations every week. When you start to see what success really means to you, you realize that you're already probably halfway there at least. And that's what's such such a, a big relief when you start shedding off all of the layers of pressure that we've that's been put on us. And I did the same activity as a mom and it made me feel like, oh my gosh, I'm already a great mom and I didn't realize it. I was stressing myself out over things that weren't in my definition of success. So I highly recommend that you don't skip chapter one. And the rest of the book is full of all these actionable strategies, but I talk about in the book, like if you just thrown all of these strategies, it's just like in your lessons at school, if you just throw all the strategies at your kiddos, they're going to look at you with like wide eyes and they're going to do nothing. And I said, if you can define what success means to you, then you can go through this book and find the strategies that you need right now, instead of getting feeling bombarded by so many strategies, pick the ones that are most meaningful for you to reach your definition of success, which is personal. It's only your definition. It's not the same as mine or Shannon's or Mary's. It's just yours. And I was able to come up with mine pretty easily, I guess, because I'm a reflective teacher. But um, I don't think y'all will be surprised knowing what Mary and I've talked about over the years. But mine is is a teacher who engages students in their own learning because that's that's and and once I realize that that's my definition, then I can just go student by student and it's a yes or no you know, have I ignited that fire in that student or not? And then I know where to go next, you know, because I know which relationships to build. And I love that. It's beautiful. And it has nothing to do with standardized tests. It has nothing to do with you working 60 hours per week. Mm -hmm. uh, It's beautiful. So, well, and Mary and I, Oh, there we go. Talking over each other. Uh, Mary and I both have worked with students who like have been unsuccessful in reading for so many years. And so that that engagement piece is really important to both of us. I I was going to share what um, what my definition of success is. And mine is actually helping students feel okay with their own learning style and Mm -hmm. then feeling confident enough to advocate for themselves or or ask questions one of the things I used to always tout in my room was the smartest people ask the best questions. So anybody can ask a question. But I, th- so for me, I think that's what it is. It's just allowing acceptance for students. Gosh, when I hear both of your definitions, I think 
these are skills that your students are going to need in life. Mm -hmm. Like being engaged and ignited, being able to advocate for themselves. I'm like, this means so much more than any test score ever could. And so at the end of the year, if you're like, I did it, I got all my kids advocating for themselves. I got all my kids ignited and engaged. Like how amazing you must feel because that is like really, that's really learning something of value that's going to, they're going to take with them forevermore. Because they don't remember, I mean, we've learned after teaching for so many years, they don't remember our fractions lesson. They don't remember, you know, like our kids remember the stories we tell them and they remember the Mm -hmm. books we read and they remember the time you wore mismatched shoes. They remember that. (laughs) Or how we made them feel in our rooms, you know, or like the crazy things that happened in the room or something. I don't know. I read, (laughs) do y'all remember me to, I told the students that I'd, um, I went to my student's graduation. So my last year in the classroom was second grade. And so then that second grade class graduated fifth grade in May. So I went to their graduation. And one of the students um, that was in my class, well, first off, I was so proud. He got a whole bunch of academic awards. And he was one of my like struggling Mm -hmm. kind of learners. And he said to me, "Um, Miss Betts, your class was the last time I ever got a C. He's like, you told me never get C's again. So I've only gotten A's and B's since then. But then he reminds then he reminds me like, do you remember I was the bug killer in the class? Like I always <laughs> killed the bugs. He would call me over anytime there was a bug, and I'm like, you know what? I do remember that now that you're saying it. You know, and that's like anyway. It's just funny what the kids. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I talk about that in my book too. If you really think back to your very favorite teacher from yeah. elementary, junior high, or high school, if you think about your favorite teacher, it's not a lesson that they taught you in academics, it was the way they made you feel. Mm -hmm. It might've been that they talked to you about your personal life or seemed interested in you as a human being, or that they believed in you when you didn't believe in yourself or other teachers didn't seem to believe in you, but it was some, something they did that made you feel like they loved you. They cared about you and your success. That's what you, that's why they're your favorite teacher. It had nothing to do with bulletin boards and fancy lessons and Um, that was hard for me because I am a thematic type teacher and I love to do all the fun things and I would get myself burnt out, Mm -hmm. always trying to do the next fun thing that I saw on social media. Same. (laughs) Just just thought I was saying, same. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's the way it goes. Yeah. I mean, I think it's part about being an elementary school teacher is that we love all of the cute stuff and it's, there's nothing wrong with that. It's just realizing what your limits are and deciding when you truly have time for it and when it's actually adding a lot of extra stress, not, not telling yourself I have to do it because the kids need me to, because the kids just need you to care about them. Mm -hmm. And you can do that with a worksheet plain old boring worksheet and you can still love on those kids. So we got to change the conversation we're having in our head about like, I have to do this book tasting. My kids are depending on it. They need it down to, I I would love to do this book tasting. It would be a fun activity, but it does not fit my schedule right now. It is not doable right now. That's hard to do. So let's, um, you you talked about book tasting, you talked about some of the things that teachers can let go of. What are some things that reading teachers could do, um, either in lesson planning, in their reading groups, in their grading? What are some things that they can do to make things simpler for themselves to save some time? 
Oh, I love to talk about saving time. Uh, first and foremost, when it comes to lesson planning, I'm a huge proponent of batching your lesson plans. And if you teach multiple subjects, batching your lesson plans can mean uh, working on just one subject's lesson plans for an extended period of time rather than just doing next week's lesson plans for every subject. What happens when we do that? We've got next week, we got our, our reading and our math and our science, and our social studies, all the things. We have to go back and forth between materials, websites, teacher books, passages we might want to use. And our brain takes time. Every time you switch tasks, you lose time. Once you get on a task and you stay on it for a while, you get in a flow. It starts to get faster and easier because your brain now knows what you want it to do. And so when we batch, when we say, you know what, instead of doing all the things for next week, I'm going to get ahead of things. It does take a lot of work at the beginning. You can always use summer months to help you get caught up if that's what you prefer, or you're going to have to make next week's lesson plans and do a batch, which is so tough. But once you get past this, you will see the time saving. Now, instead of doing all the different subjects, you could say, I'm going to do five weeks of reading plans. And you allow your head to get into the flow and then you stay there. Instead of immediately needing to switch to math or writing or science, you stay on your reading lesson plan. So this is really a fabulous way to save some time on lesson planning. Even if you only teach one subject area, thinking about what like tasks you can group together and do a lot of that task rather than a little of every task will save you time. Batching is also something you can even do in the house to save time at home. Always think about ways that you can do more of the like tasks together. I also think with lesson planning, the, the big time saver is having routines. I, I'm cutesy in the classroom. I like to do all the things I see online. I, I see it and then I'm like, oh, my kids would like that. I need to do that too. And it's so tempting to every week, my class looks different. This week in reading, we're doing this. And then next week, it's going to look really different because we're going to do this. And it sounds good. And then when I start working on it, I'm wasting so much of my personal time preparing all new things. But then I get to the classroom and I have to waste classroom time teaching teaching directions. Yeah, directions, expectations, and all. and then my students don't get that opportunity to feel confident because it's always changing on them. Mm-hmm. So routines became my best friend, and it took a little work to to say no. I'm not going to do the new fancy thing. I do, I would do some cute things like when it was a holiday, but then try mm-hmm. to keep all the routines the same as much as possible. And this changed the way I taught. So I had daily routines and weekly routines. It might just depend on the subject. But like you brought up grammar, I had a weekly routine for grammar. So every Monday I used a PowerPoint to teach a new lesson. Every Tuesday I used an interactive notebook activity to review that lesson. And every Wednesday we did some writing that involved that lesson. Every Thursday we did a task card suit and every Friday we did an assessment. So if you came into my classroom every Wednesday during grammar, you would see the same thing happening. This made it easier for me to prep because I now know I need interactive notebook activities for each of my grammar skills for the rest of the year. You can like look for bundles. You can pre-prep them. And my students now know how to do an interactive notebook activity. I teach it at the beginning of the year and they use that skill all year long. I'm not like changing it constantly so they don't know what to expect. Daily routines happen in my reading lessons. Reading was the same each day, just We were working on different topics, maybe, 
but I was started with a read aloud for 10 minutes. Then I had a whole group lesson where I taught a skill and then we had our small group and in small group, we were always, we had similar activities and in our centers, the activities stayed the same all year. The, the skills switched out. So my students knew what to expect and it made it easier for me to lesson plan because I could just write in my lesson plans. Like for grammar, I could write in my lesson plans for the rest of the year every Tuesday, interactive notebook activity. And then each week, all I had to do was write for nouns, for adjectives. You know, I just had to add the skill, which saved me so much time. I was not going to Pinterest going, how to teach verbs. I already made the decision I was going to teach verbs the same way I taught nouns and adverbs. And so I didn't have to go looking for something fresh as often. You can still freshen it up and do something fun occasionally when you have the bandwidth to be able to research prep and prepare those types of activities. And I thought it was fun to do around the holidays, but I think those are great ways to save some time on lesson planning. And I definitely go into more detail in the book, but that's how I started to be able to do my lesson planning in about an hour per week. And I didn't set out to do it that way. You just sort of taught me <laughs> like by, by example. But when I started using your grammar new units and the students had that predictable, you know, Monday's PowerPoint, Tuesday's this, Wednesday's this, they got to where they, you know, were like, oh, it's Tuesday. We're going to do this. And that was so freeing for them and relaxing for them to know what was expected that then they were more tuned into the concept we were learning because they didn't have to learn new directions. They didn't have to learn a new routine. They only had to learn the content. And so it makes them more confident. It does. Yeah. And, and then they were more focused on like, okay, this is what I actually need to learn because I already know how to do the routine. And so then when I saw it working for grammar, I started doing that for reading. And um, my reading ones used to look like Mondays, we always did an art project related to the phonics skill. And then Tuesday, I would kind of review the phonics skill and then also introduce the story of the week because we had to use the basal. And then Wednesday, I would dig into the comprehension skill with the basal story. And then Thursdays, they would apply it more in their independent reading. Those were all the mini lessons. Of course, I had reading groups throughout the time mm -hmm. um, each day of the week. But once I applied that, I kind of applied that model to my math and my grammar writing and reading, then I was actually, I didn't need that structure for science and social studies. And so those were the times you said you did your creative things during holidays. Mm -hmm. I did my creative things during science and social mm -hmm. studies. We could dig yeah. into projects. We could, could dig into all these kind of concept, you know, content knowledge things. And it didn't matter if they were different every time because the rest of the day was less of a memory routine cognitive load for the students. I love that. And it was saving you the time as well as you were prepping. So then you had the bandwidth to do fun uh, activities in science and social studies that weren't necessarily as routine. I love that. I was just going to add that um, I also feel like using those routines is so helpful when you have other professionals in your classroom. So if you have a paraprofessional, you can teach them, you know, how the flow is going to go, and then they can be a little bit more autonomous. Um, and, and they feel really good about being able to take on a test that they feel really good about. So it's not just every day. I'm here's a new worksheet that you can work on. Here's something else to do. Here's something else. And feeling like I had to give them less because I didn't have the bandwidth to teach them how to do the activity that I actually really wanted them to do. Mm -hmm. um, so I, yeah, learning how to batch is honestly the key. It's the key. Yeah. 
Yeah. And I found even parent volunteers, if you have the opportunity to use them in the classroom, when you have these routines, they get really used to it as well and are able to mm-hmm. jump in and assist um, whether it's the preparation of the materials, because you know you're going to need these materials for the whole year, or whether it's actually working with a student, wh- once they've been able to watch it happen in your classroom over and over, they can also assist. So having these routines helps everyone in the classroom, teachers, students, and and others who are assisting. Yeah, Mary, I had a co-teacher, um, a special ed co-teacher those two years that I... Can you all hear me? Okay. I had a co-teacher, um, special ed for those two years and, um, the Thursday task card scoot, she was able to run it for me. And then that was our send home papers day. And so I was able to load my mailboxes every, every time during grammar, you know, for the, you know, 10, 15 minutes they were doing the scoot, which was very helpful for me as a teacher. <laughs> Cause I didn't have to use my planning time to do that. And then everybody knew the routine. And so it was still an efficient learning time for the class. Yeah, it fits your definition of success. You're getting your students engaged in the grammar skill for the week. They're up, they're moving. And so you can feel really good about what you're doing in the classroom, even though you're keeping it simple and routine. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so routine doesn't have to be boring. I think one of the really cool things about um, your book is that you have such a fresh, honest, but also humorous approach to um, just just you know, relating to teachers and understanding what's joyful in the classroom. So I'm wondering, will you share um, one of the anecdotes you have with us? (laughs) Um, I'll request either the marshmallow one or the poop rug. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Oh, well, marshmallows. I I love I love the marshmallow story. Um, When I was Uh, getting married, I was actually still in college. And so my mom threw my bridal shower, which was great because her friends could afford to buy me things. And my friends were poor college students. So she hosted the bridal shower and she planned all the games and things. And she had this game where she asked Scott, my now husband, all these questions about himself and she recorded the answers. And then in front of everybody at the party, she would ask me the question. If I got it right, then we just moved on to the next question. But if I got it wrong, she put one of those jumbo marshmallows in my mouth and I wasn't allowed to chew or swallow it. I just had to like keep it in my mouth till the end of the game. And I thought, well, this is this is great. I know him. I have been with him for four years. I'm going to get these questions right. I know more about him than he knows about himself. And I, <laughs> But right away, I realized I had been duped. Until this day, neither of them will tell me who duped me because I got every question wrong. And I don't know if Scott just gave the wrong answers on purpose to be funny or if my mom just switched the answers to be funny. (laughs) I don't know. But everyone, I mean, his shoe size. I'm like, I buy his shoes. I know his shoe size. Got it wrong. So I had this huge mouthful of marshmallows. Like I couldn't even talk anymore. So I couldn't actually even say the answer. And up to this day, I hate marshmallows. Like with a passion, I cannot stand marshmallows. Every time I see them, I think of that day. And I think about that as teachers, though. How often people are just shoving more on our plate, more marshmallows in the mouth. Like as soon as you think you've got things down, you're like, all right, I can breathe. They're like, hey, new curriculum. Hey, you got a student teacher. And there's this PD you got to go to. I remember going to a meeting and they said, Guess what, guys? We're going to teach Spanish this year to our students. And I said, I don't know Spanish. And they're like, you're going to have to learn it. There's another marshmallow, marshmallow, you know, new new technology that we're not going to teach you how to use, but we want you to use it every single day. And so I feel like teachers can relate to the just getting more and more marshmallows out of your mouth. You feel like 
you just going to burst. You're yeah. going to burst. You're going to gag. And unfortunately, that's really how a lot of teachers feel right now. So that's the marshmallow story. <laughs> I love that. That's a that's a really good take on on how it does feel. And <laughs> yeah, uh, but we have to find a way to keep the marshmallows out of our mouths because we can't, it's not sustainable to walk around with all those marshmallows in your mouth. You've got to be able to breathe. And so um, that's why I talk a lot in the book about finding these strategies. that are going to take some things off of your plate or at least make it faster. Mm -hmm. I liked a lot of your strategies for the grading as well. I, I ended up doing a lot of those. I took um, Angela Watson's 40 hour work week class. Mm -hmm. Um, when I had kind of changed from reading specialist to second grade again, and that it, it, she advocates for a lot of the same strategies, like to just reduce those hours. And then it doesn't mean you're a bad teacher if you're leaving, you know, yeah. um, before four each day. Um, no, I'm going to, I'm going to go and say, if you're the teacher who leaves at your contracted time, whenever that might be, I'm going to say like, kudos, you're an amazing teacher. And that's what we all should want to set our goals to do. So I am a huge proponent of that. And grading, you brought up grading. I think an important thing for us to get into our heads is that we don't have to grade everything. And in fact, you shouldn't mm -hmm. grade everything. Somewhere along the line, we sort of lost like the meaning of grades. And uh, it would be good to just sit down and reflect on that. Like, why do you grade? Mm-hmm. A grade is not a punishment. A grade is truly the reflection of what standards a student has mastered and not mastered. It is to help you as the teacher to design your future lessons, as well as when to give intervention and extra support to students who might need it. Every assignment doesn't have to be graded for you to know this. And so I really encourage teachers, if you don't already, if you don't already know, figure out how many grades are you required to put on your grade book. And that's going to be different for everyone. Uh, when I was teaching, they didn't say, they don't say awesome because now yeah, you, you get decide. to define it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And you should get to decide, but if they do make that your minimum baseline, don't try to be a superhero. If they say you have to have two reading grades a week, do not try and put four or five in the grade book every week. It's unnecessary. It's so extra. Also remembering why you gave the assignment. If the assignment was given to practice a skill, then that's not an assessment. So don't grade it. If it's to practice the skill, truly allow a student to practice without the pressure of a grade. You can always look at one problem to see, okay, which students need more support and which don't. Do a quick um, just sorting of the papers that way. But don't feel like you have to go through every single worksheet and assignment you've ever given and give a grade for it just because the students have done it. And I've heard teachers say, well, they did it. So I feel like I must put a grade on it. If you feel like you got to do something, put a sticker on it, but you don't have to grade it. In fact, I would suggest the recycling bin after you've given them the opportunity to practice and maybe you've checked, you, you pick like, I'm going to look at number two on every page and you know what the, the answer should be. So you could flip really fast to the papers and you're like, all right. They're doing really good on this skill. We might be ready to move towards an assessment now that they've practiced. But every homework assignment, every center does not need to be graded. So really closely look at your plans for next week and, and decide which ones, which skills are they ready to be assessed on? Those are the ones to grade. Everything else can be considered practice. And it's okay 
to after the practice is complete, recycle them and move on. This does not mean you are not doing your job as a teacher. It's quite the opposite. You gave them that opportunity to practice and you should feel proud of that. I totally agree. And um, one of the things that I would do and you suggested too, is just to give like very, like give, you don't have to, you don't need the easy grader for the grades that you give. Like give either five question, 10 question, 20 question or 25 question quizzes. Like those are the only four choices because all of those are easy to grade and get out of a hundred percent. Yeah. I love that. I don't know why there are assessments with like a million questions. First of all, if, if you have worksheets where it's like 50 questions, you don't need 50 questions to figure out if a student can do a skill. It takes usually just a few. And I love the number 10. The number 10 is great. It's easy for grading, but it's also enough that if they just miss mistakenly got one wrong. They're not, They're not failing, failing assignment, yeah. Yeah. but you can easily tell these students are ready to move on. These students need more support. These students are lost and they've really got to help them. And it's just really quick to grade. So I a hundred percent love that nowadays with technology. I mean, look at ways that you can use self grading with things like Google forms. It's not possible for every assignment, mm-hmm. but look for it. It's okay to have multiple choice questions on some of your assessments. It doesn't have to be the only way you assess. Higher order thinking questions, writing essays are so valuable, but I had gotten it in my head because my administration talked about higher order thinking so much at PD that I couldn't ask multiple choice questions anymore. And the crazy thing is all my standardized tests had a ton of multiple choice questions. And so I wasn't even assessing them the same way they were going to be assessed at the mm-hmm. end of the year. Multiple choice is perfectly okay. Some of the time, it does not always have to be a written response. I would always grade as they handed in too, because my students would always change things. You'd turn things in at different pace, you know? So I always right. have my key ready to go the second I turn, you know, passed out the test. And then some students were done in five minutes. So I would already be able to grade two or three assessments and kind of get that jump start on the uh-huh. grading. And that always made the grading feel easier. The other thing I did is I always put the grade in the electronic grade book, like the assignment in there, the second I gave it, like as soon as I passed it out so that then it was there and easier to enter in, you Mm -hmm. know, because that was just one more step in the whole process that I had to do. Absolutely. I love to grade as they turned it in. Also, another strategy I would use if I knew I was going to be great at while they turned it in, maybe it was a longer assessment, like a written response. My students all had numbers. I would have them keep their assessment at their desk until our time was up. And then I would collect it by number because they were in oh, alphabetical order. Um, so then all my assessments now in numbers. Yeah, it makes it easier. It's just the it's the tiny little things to make it just a tad easier versus going to this turn in box and it's all they're all in there messy and someone folded theirs and they're upside down and, and every, uh, all the order you have to, as you grade, you either have to put them in order or you got to find them on your grade book. It's just a little thing. One of my students was to prep everything, put them in order, <laughs> paper clip it, and then give me the stack. Nice. Yeah. So um, anything to save a couple minutes. Mary, Jamie had some really good suggestions for simplifying reading groups too. And you want to share about your magic two groups a day? Yeah. You know, when I first started teaching, teaching was my second career and I student taught in high school. So actually when I got my job in elementary school, I'd only had experience substituting and uh, realized very quickly, very different situation. But I just always thought you had to have four groups. 
That's all I'd ever seen. And for all the substituting jobs they did, they had four reading groups and they met with all four reading groups every single day. And so that's what I did. I had four reading groups. I met with them every day. And it was like a, a marathon race. So they come to my table and we try to read something, but then I'm like, oh, time's up, quick, switch. And the next group comes, I'm like, quick, 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 sit down, open your book. Let's go, let's mm-hmm. go. And at the, wait, at the end of meeting with four groups, I'm like, I need a nap. And my kids yeah. probably felt the exact same thing. It was chaos. And so I got thinking about it and I thought, I, I have 40 minutes to meet with my groups. I think I'm meeting with them each for 10 minutes, but I'm not actually because of all the transitioning. And even though I taught my kids to be pretty quick at transitions, there's still going to be a transition time uh, as I get out new materials and move around your classroom. And so I'm not getting 10 minutes. And I quickly realized like, if we we're talking about close reading and all these great skills I want to work on with my kiddos, I can't do it in seven or eight minutes. I need more time to dig into text. If I'm going to get them to love reading, I want to get past the first paragraph. I don't want to have to review and reread it tomorrow because we didn't get very far and they don't even remember what we read. That's not going to help them love reading. So I thought, I'm just going to meet with two groups a day. And I thought, I am crazy. No one else is doing this. But I started meeting with two groups. I still had four reading groups, but I only met with two each day. So I met with maybe groups A and B on Monday and Wednesday and groups C and D Tuesday and Thursday. I didn't usually have groups on Fridays as we had a shortened schedule on Fridays. And so I was meeting with my groups twice a week instead of four times a week. But what I found was it more than doubled the amount of time that I had for a single reading group because there was fewer transitions. So I now had a bigger chunk of time to meet with the groups, maybe as much as 17 minutes even. And so we could read through an entire passage and discuss it on a deeper level than when we had that shortened period of time. But also I found myself able to breathe. I was not having to move kids as fast, barking at them, trying to get them to move quicker. And in the process, I loved reading groups more. My students were growing more as readers. They were all happier for it. And I think a big part about how to love teaching is taking a look at the times in your classroom that you don't like or that are feel a little chaotic and overwhelming and asking your brain to offer up some solutions for how we can simplify that time in your classroom. And for me, simplifying the center time meant I didn't have to get rid of center time. I just made it work for us better. And you simplified the centers that the kids were doing on their own, where they were interrupting you less because they had to, they didn't have to ask for procedural questions, direction questions, things mm-hmm. like that. And so yeah, we were doing the same activities all year. So I spent a lot of time at the beginning of the year teaching the activities, but we kept doing them all year. Things like read to self can stay in your centers all year. Responding to reading, if you give them a menu of questions that they can respond to, they can do that all year. Maybe a technology center where they have a website or an app that they're working on. These are things that can stay the same. So once they figure out how to do it, they don't have to bother you so much. They feel confident. It's a routine like we talked about earlier. Mm-hmm. Uh, as I'm kind of reflecting on this, I love this theme of giving yourself permission to do things differently, because I think that teachers are super rule followers in a lot of ways. We definitely are. And um, it feels good to say yes a lot of times, too. But I think that when you give yourself permission and you start to actually like practice doing things in a different way, you you kind of allow yourself to 
get better at it. And that was, that was the really hard, I think that was the big jump from my first two years of teaching to the third and fourth years of teaching was I finally figured out how it felt good to me. It didn't mean that I, I mean, I still think there are plenty of times where I'm looking to do things a little bit um, smarter or easier. And that's different than, oh, I have to get this done because my brain is constantly telling me you have to do it this way. This is what's supposed to happen. (laughs) So you have to break that cycle a little bit. You do. And you see like other teachers doing it that way. So it's like, well, that must be the way it's done. And that's how reading groups work for me. I saw other teachers meeting with four groups a day. So therefore that must be the way it is. But who says, who says you have to meet with all four reading groups every single day? Hopefully not your administration. Um, But it's just giving yourself permission to try something new for you. Every classroom cannot possibly look identical because we are not all identical and neither are our students. So what Mm -hmm. the teacher next door needs to do for her reading groups is not necessarily the same as what you need to do for your students, but also the way you prepare and and the way that you deliver lessons is different. And giving yourself permission to do what works for you, you, your students, your classroom is so important. I was always trying to copy the teachers around me because I thought that would make me successful. Well, and because you started, you start the process with defining your own definition of success, that guides you through all these changes that you Mm -hmm. might be making to simplify things in your classroom. And then Mary, there is a chapter in her book about avoiding that comparison trap, um, which is something that might come up as you're doing things, you know, maybe against the flow of like what might be the norm in your school building. Yeah. Or even just what you're seeing on Instagram or TikTok. um, You're always, we're always trying to keep up. And so the the title of the chapter is actually keep your eyes on your own paper. And it's it's a lesson we teach our students, but one maybe we could, could use a little of too, is that we're trying so hard to keep up with other teachers. And that is damaging for us and our love for teaching because we always feel like we're not enough. Because we're not doing what so-and-so is doing on Instagram. We're not doing what so-and-so is doing across the the hallway. And we fail to see all the amazing things we are doing that they might not be doing because we're only looking at this this thing we aren't doing. And for me, teacher across the classroom was teaching music appreciation. I kid you not. Third grade, she's teaching music appreciation in her classroom. And I was over here like, I cannot even fit in just math and reading, writing, science, social studies. And she's teaching music appreciation. It worked for her. It was soothing for her. It's how she connected with her students. That would stress me out. That would put me over the edge. So that's not a good move for me. And it took a while for me to understand that it's okay to make decisions about what works for me and for my classroom and not feel like I need to be doing everything I see. I love that you can go on Instagram, TikTok, Pinterest, and find all these great ideas. It's just a matter of deciding which ones that you want to implement now and which ones can stay on a maybe someday list. Mm -hmm. It's like, okay, you know what? Reading groups are going fine for me. So I'm not going to change my reading groups. You know, what's not going well is writing. So I'm looking for new ideas for writing and not feeling like I need to completely redo reading, which was already going pretty smoothly. It's, it's deciding which things you have the space on your calendar and in your mind to implement now and which ones can stay on a dream board. They may or may not ever happen. And that's okay. I I just commend you for this because I really think that this is um, in this era where kids have a lot of anxiety. We have 
access to so many things, making um, choices about our priorities is really difficult. And it's super difficult for students in our class. It's super difficult for me as an adult who is fairly functional. Um, but, you know, even like modeling and sharing how you can have access to all these things, but prioritizing and feeling that authentic, this feels good to me, um, mm -hmm. or this is my my best way of doing it, um, it, it makes all the difference. And so I think we have to be explicit. Kids are yeah. seeking this and craving it. So anyway, yeah, just the more you do it, the, it's like practicing. Mm -hmm. it, it's hard at first. At first, I'm like, I'm planning over the weekend. I'm like, oh my God, I got to do all these things. I saw this thing on Pinterest. I saw this thing on Instagram and I screenshot this. I got to go to the craft store to buy all these supplies because I now got to do it this way. And that's how I started. But as I slowly was like, you know what? This craft looks really fun, but it just doesn't fit in to my schedule or my classroom schedule right now, maybe next year. And setting it aside, you can put it on a Pinterest board. You can put it in, in a, a note to save doesn't mean you'll never do it, but the more you make that decision for yourself, the easier it gets to make the decision in the future and to feel good about it, to know that your students are getting the best of you because you chose not to do all those extra things that would have caused you to come into the classroom feeling exhausted. And that's not the version of the teacher that they need the most. I think the way that you reframe like the to-do list instead of making it more like it's a calendar and it's you're scheduling the time of when things will get done, that that's a mindful way of um, of making choices. And, Absolutely. And, because if there's not a time block to get it done, right. then let's not keep it on our to-do list because the to-do list is exhausting, right? Mm -hmm. All day long. I would keep a post-it note all day long. I just keep adding to it knowing that there was not even close to enough time to actually do everything on this list. It's important that we do a brain dump and we get all the stuff out of our brain because yeah. our brain holds on to stuff. And in the middle of the night tells you, oh my gosh, you got to go photocopy this. And then you can't sleep because it's thinking about it. So we want to dump it all out of our brain. But then we got to look at the list and be like, which of these things is a priority? Things like an IEP meeting, priority. Gonna have to put that on the calendar. There's an exact time and you've got to be there prepping for that IEP meeting. Well, can't do it after the IEP meeting. I'm going to have to do it before. Got, got to put that on the calendar. Once you start putting the priority items down, you realize how much time you have to play with. And so you can look at that dump list and say, you know what? I don't have time for these things. And that's okay. Mm -hmm. And that you have to just give yourself that permission. And that's okay. You can decide to delay some of these things. Like, you know what? I'm not going to add the new app to the iPad this week. It doesn't fit on my schedule. You can delegate some of these things. I have a parent volunteer who could do this or even like uh, high school kids in your neighborhood, or if you have children, they can cut my lamination for me. You can delete, you can flat out say, you know what? It was a good idea, but it just doesn't work for me. It's not, there's no place on it, my calendar for it. So I'm going to just cross it off and not do it. It feels good when you give yourself permission to prioritize the important things that you are going to get done instead of just making a huge to-do list. And I think you learn that at post-planning after you've been teaching a few years, like you find that pile of stuff that you never quite got to in the year and you're like, okay, well, the year's over. It's all going in the garbage and the world didn't end, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's true. It, when you don't get time for those activities and, and your students were still just fine, 
Yeah. Then, you're, then you're kicking yourself like, man, I spent a lot of time prepping those activities <laughs> right. that I thought they needed. Yeah. Yeah. I had a principal tell me one time they were redoing his office and he waited till the very last minute to clean off his desk. And I mean, like the contractors are coming in the room and he had to shove everything on his desk into a cardboard box. And then they moved him and he found that cardboard box like three months later. And he realized that not a single piece of paper was important, but like whatever it had to get done, people had called him about or emailed him about or whatever, he ended up throwing every single item in that corporate box away. Yes. Our brain will tell us that everything on that list is a must. Like immediately yeah. our brain will be like, it's a must. But then when you get very real, like, okay, it is February. My bulletin board still has elves on it. And <laughs> note to self, so, don't do elves. Like you said, <laughs> yeah, note to self, we're not putting elves on our bulletin board next year. Do but snowflakes because they can last longer. <laughs> longer. Yeah. But at the same time, I don't have time this week to redo the bulletin board. And hey, we had elves all through January. So why not keep them up through February? It's okay. And you have to tell your brain it's okay because it will immediately tell you it is not, especially if you are a bit of a perfectionist, which I am. And I found it to be a very common trait amongst teachers is that our brain immediately is like, no, but that's not how it's supposed to be. So I have to do it. So I'm going to stay really late tonight doing it. I don't have time for it, but I'm still going to do it anyway. I'm going to take time for my personal life to get it done. Ooh, challenge yourself, challenge your, your brain on that. I, I think you're so spot on all of this. I have this um this trick that I learned fairly early on and most parents do, are aware of it, but like the power of the timer where you can blame that the transition has to happen on the timer. So you say, oh, the clock says it's time to go. So it's not my fault because I'm giving you this direction, but I want to replace clock with calendar for my own mental health. You know, my calendar doesn't allow it right now. My, you know, and it's not, me, I'm not, you know, my self-worth isn't tied to this. Mm -hmm. It's just my calendar. And I think that, that those comments are so helpful. You have to, you have to be able to give yourself grace in that. So whatever works. I love, love that you're going to blame the calendar and that's perfect. And in those moments you're choosing you and that's really important to your students. I can't say it enough that your students benefit every single time you choose you. Because when you come back to school tomorrow, because you didn't stay late working on redoing your bulletin boards, when you come back tomorrow refreshed, rested, and even interesting, you're more interesting when you have hobbies that your students can't wait to hear about, your students are going to form a deeper relationship with you and learn more from you, which goes right back to that definition of success had nothing to do with that bulletin board. So you can feel guilt-free leaving the elves up on the bulletin board. You know what? Maybe in February, you could add a little heart to their hat. And they're like Valentine's elves. They're gnomes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, Jamie. I, I'm thinking we're getting closer to March. So you might just get yeah. a green hat. And there you there have you it. There you go. So. <laughs> now they're leprechauns. You leave um, them up all year. That's fine. <laughs> Jamie, um, you just give so many good tips. I just wish you had been around like early on in my career where you could have just been in my ear, just kind of sharing some of these things that I sort of had to learn after years of burnout and having to use my summer to recharge my batteries. Um, And so I I really appreciate that you wrote this book and shared these tips and that the teachers can benefit from from your experience and your wisdom. Well, thank you so much. Have. I was just so going to share, if anybody has a new teacher in their sphere, please share this book. Or someone is, who is 
feeling mm-hmm. that you know really like just needing up. that um extra little this i don't um, know recharge and boost to their teaching this is the this is the course that that is not taught in college this is what you have to learn as a teacher to get out of survival mode and enjoy it but thank you so much for your time today and your wisdom it's a joy to talk with you it has been an honor and I want to thank you for using your platform to help teachers all over the country or homeschooling parents to help them to find this joy because um, getting to teach kids is a, is such an honor and I love what you're doing to help teachers to stay in the classroom and find that joy. Yeah, we want the teachers to stay so they can keep helping, you know, the ones who, especially the ones who are experienced and know how to teach kids how to teach, how to read. We need them to stay in the field. The ones who are passionate about it. Yes. You want them to stay. Our students need that, but we want you to do it while still finding joy in your own life. You can do it for the kids and for you. Yep. 